Are you tired of being blinded by the light of the sun when it comes to looking at stuff in the water? Well, Costa sunglasses help with that. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, it really does help. And uh, I'm someone who absolutely loves just to look at, like, fish swimming around in the water. And uh, the moment I put a pair of Costas on with polarized lenses, uh, I can see straight through the water and kind of get a glimpse of what I'm looking at. They use 580 lens technology that enhances comfort and color, brings out beauty, and helps you stay out on the water longer. Um, But if you're not a fisherman or fisherwoman, they're just great sunglasses for anything. Glare off the snow, glare um, in the mountains, off rivers, as well as just comfortable sunglasses to wear all the time. So if you want to be able to stay out there longer, you're going to need a good pair of sunglasses. We recommend Costas. Go to costassunglasses.com to learn more so you can keep seeing what's out there. And they rooted through the tablets one by one and found these painkillers, ordinary painkillers, which you can get over the counter here in the UK called Cocodamol. And unbeknown to me, they were classed in Uzbekistan as an illegal narcotic. And so from that moment on, (laughs) I was in their eyes an illegal drug smuggler. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, trying to help you find adventure every day in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life little more out of the box than usual. Hey, I hope you're having a good week so far. Uh, you know, at last Friday, we listened to Ali France talk about uh, some of his guiding experiences in really hostile environments, uh, which was crazy to me. But uh, he, he's been on the show before, episode 330 where he talks about kind of, we mentioned it a little bit in the most recent episode, but I I just wanted to do a flashback and uh, share with it because this episode is with Kurt and he focuses 100% on his experience of literally doing this trip right in the middle of a home renovation, right before he got married for 108 days along the spine of Asia, climbing mountains all over the place. What an epic adventure. And I hope you enjoy um, today's episode is brought to us by Athletic Brewing, the makers of just incredible non-alcoholic beer. If you love the taste of beer, but you're committed to either sobriety or, or getting fit, give them a shot. It's great stuff, and you get 15% off using the code ADVENTURE. Also, if you need a good coffee option while you travel or if you need something convenient, check out CS Instant Coffee. They're huge fans of the show, and they are giving our listeners 20% off at csinstant.coffee. And here's the episode. Hi, friends. Thank you again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. The guest that I have for you today is a traveler, an adventurer, a writer, a public speaker, a photographer, a British adventurer, We're glad to have Ollie France with us. Ollie is here to talk about a lot of his adventures, but especially one where he traveled from Hong Kong to Istanbul solo. It took him four months. He went through 11 countries. He traveled over the spine of Asia. He climbed 14 mountains in winter, and the book is called The Trail of the Mountain Folk. So, Ollie, welcome to the program. Hi, Kurt. It's great great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, you bet. It's our pleasure. 
Man, it sounds like an amazing adventure. And it's not just about travel. It's about mountaineering in the wintertime as well. I'm excited to dive into those yeah. details. But before we do, we got to get the backstory a little bit. So All right. where are you in UK? So I'm based up in a town of Wigan in the north of the UK. Uh, born and bred here. And it's a, it's a northern industrial town and quite away from the mountains, actually. Um, so my childhood was was mainly spent playing conventional sports, football and rugby. Uh, we had a very good rugby team. And then around about the age of 16, 17, I discovered climbing. And uh, I've never really looked back since uh, over the last decade. Wow. Well, you have a bachelor's degree in outdoor leadership as well. Were you planning for a career in, in adventure? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, in my childhood, I, I really had no no concept of the outdoor world whatsoever. It was completely alien to me. And as I mentioned, I first went climbing at around about the age of 16. And it was that trip, actually, uh, which really just fostered a, an immediate love for the outdoors and the adventurous nature of it, the, the adrenaline you can get from it. And it was, it was that one experience that led me to sign up to a three-year university degree studying outdoor leadership. Mm. Um, it, it was that much, it was that impactful for me. Did you pursue a career outside of expeditions and adventure, and then eventually come back to it? How, tell us that story. Well, I went straight in, straight from college into university and studied my degree, and I was doing lots of bits of traveling in between. I, I went and worked in America at a sports camp. I traveled around in Morocco and taught in Lebanon and volunteered in Uganda, and then went and worked in Australia for a year. And I came back, and um, as often happens with these travels, I didn't have so much money left, so I realized I needed to get a job, and uh, just so happened to get a job selling kitchens, which is, yeah, a little different to the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the great career I'm pursuing right now. Yeah, so I did that for two years, and don't get me wrong, um, you know, a, a job like that has its perks. You get a, a steady wage and, and all those things, but the more I went into that career, I just I just had this this urge inside me to to get back to what I was really passionate about and to try and turn my life around and dedicate it back to adventure. And it was it was two years in, and I decided, without anything lined up whatsoever, to quit my job and embark on a big expedition. And it's it's this this Asian trip, which is what I set out to complete. Um, and I can go into a little more detail of what my objectives were for that. Well, we will, we will, but let's, before we do, let's get a little more, uh, information about what adventure is to you. So I see that on your website here, you've traveled over 50 countries. So you've done a lot of traveling to you is adventure about traveling or is it about climbing mountains or what other adventure sports do you enjoy? Well, I, I do like to, I do like to say that uh, adventure does not have to be overseas. It does not have to be far fetched, and adventure can absolutely be found in your own backyard. And I'm a huge proponent of that. Um, I, I make the conscious effort, even when I'm at home in, in my industrial town, to to head out to the nearby fil- fields and forests, and at least go for a run, go for a trail run go for a walk with my wife, um, just get out there because 
I think adventure is so accessible and in some ways adventure can be a scary word for people. They hear it and they think it, you need to be a seasoned expeditionist, you need to be a man of the mountains. Um, but I wouldn't consider myself any of those things. Um, so adventure for me is stepping beyond your own personal boundaries and breaking out of your comfort zone a little, trying something new, um, mm. maybe seeking out a little adrenaline rush from either an outdoor activity or or just going exploring nature in some way. Well, cool. Ollie, let's dive into your trip. I would like to hear the right. details of that. I uh, I don't know many people who have traveled in that part of the world. To me, it's it's just like a big unknown, and I can't even visualize your route. And so, <laughs> fill us in. From You started in Hong Kong, and you went to Istanbul, so all the way to Turkey, yeah. and that means you crossed all the stands, right? I did, yes. yes. <laughs> okay, so what was that route? <laughs> Um, well, almost all the stands. Um, so the route was it was it was it was um, spending many years looking at maps, which really selected this route for me. And if you if you look at a topographical map of Asia, you'll notice a, a continu- an almost continuous spine of mountains which stretches from Southeast Asia uh, down near Laos, Vietnam, and, and Burma. And then up through the Tibetan Plateau, and then you've got the Pamirs of Afghanistan, the Tian Shan of of Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, and they wind down through Iran and up through the Caucasus of Azerbaijan, Armenia, and then and then the mountains of of Turkey and towards Istanbul. And it was looking at this this chain of mountains, which it just spawned this question in my mind: Would it be possible to travel overland through all these mountain ranges? Uh, by any means whatsoever, and climb at least one mountain in each country. Mm. And so that was the that was the kind of wild goal I set myself. And and uh, so yeah, I decided to to start off in in Hong Kong, and moved quickly into into Vietnam, uh, which, which is the mountains there are jungle clad, absolutely beautiful, pristine, home to wonderful, colourful hill tribes. Who are who are really um, born and bred in the mountains? Very tough, hardy folk, um, and and that's that's where my journey began. You really did go through a lot of places that I don't think are heavily traveled. Yes, I certainly did. Yeah, um, places like I mean, Central Asia, like you said, it is it is some, somewhat of a, of a a geographical black hole. Uh, much of it was was under the rule of the Soviet Union until until the mid nineties, and then suddenly, from nowhere, five countries appeared. They then being Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan, which constitute Central Asia. And it was my intention to travel all the way through those those five countries. And it was it was here where I had some of my more interesting challenges. Um, which included getting uh, getting detained for several days, being spied upon, uh, being held at borders, being skirted by avalanches, being trapped in blizzards, and immense amount of challenges as I was as I was tackling some very remote mountains in in the middle of winter and really pushing myself to my absolute limits in those countries. Mm. So when you set out on the trip, did you expect these sorts of of challenges? Well, the reality is probably probably not. It was from the in, from the outset. 
I, I knew that I was stay, taking a conscious step into the unknown. Um, as you say, the, these countries aren't known about so much. And although you, you hear things from fellow travellers about perhaps uh, problems with with police, for instance, on, on the people side, and then you, you certainly hear tales of daring adventures in the mountains in these regions. But certainly the the encounters that I had and the experiences I had were far more, far more um, powerful, far more dangerous, far more scary at times than I ever could have imagined. Mm. So logistically, when you decided to take this trip, uh, did you do a lot of planning? Did you have all your visas in advance and that sort of thing? Well, you may perhaps expect me to say yes, but honestly, no. I had I had a destination, which which was Istanbul, which lay 8,000 miles away from Hong Kong. I had no guidebooks. I had no set route at the time I set off. I had my Chinese visa, uh, but that was all. And, and you know, I just had a, a very, I, I had my destination, but everything else was, was sort of left up to chance and opportunity, um, which kind of sounds crazy. But um, I, I think it was that having that ability to be flexible, to move, to change, to change direction, to go with the flow, to meet people and get advice and, and go to one place rather than another. Um, to 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 wing it in in a certain way and allow people to guide your journey. I wanted that to 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 happen. I didn't want to follow uh, a commonly trodden route that you might find in a guidebook. I wanted sort of people to to guide my way, if that makes sense. It does, and I think it's a wonderful way to travel. It would be so great. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of travelers, a lot of adventurers, and. It starts out, I've said this on the show before, but it always starts out that it's about this adventure. And then by the by the end, it turns into, it's really about the people I encountered along the way. It was both, right? But mm. people always seem to be uh, the focus. In, in the end, that's what makes people go, wow, it, the people were so cool. And uh, Absolutely. choosing in advance yeah. to let the local people kind of guide your steps Man, that makes perfect sense. To me, that is the probably the best way to travel if, if you can do it. Yeah, 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 wholeheartedly agree. And um, I think solo travel actually lend itself to that because you're forced to to problem solve on your own and, and expose yourself to other people um, rather than being sort of insular as you might be in a team or in a, a group of people. Um, you need to ask other people for help. You need to find suggestions. Um, you need you need to seek advice, and it's it's being a solo traveller, which I think, although frightening and, and scary at first, perhaps it is so liberating once you once you realise that we're all humans and and we're all will, willing to help each other. Um, you know, in times of need, and I was certainly in some times of need along my journey. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, let's dive into that just a little bit. You mentioned okay. earlier that you took a conscious step into the unknown. And I love how you said yeah. that. What were the the scary parts of this? I, it, there aren't a lot of people that will mm. just dive into something that's that unknown without a little bit more information and planning. Um, was there something that you found particularly challenging or compelling or scary about the the way that you approach this, 
Yeah, I mean, there were. I can, I can, I can pick out specific situations where, where because you are sort of off the beaten track, um, certain things happen which, which you could never have anticipated, and because you've not sought out uh, research, you've not done your research on places, um, you, you're not so clued up as to what to expect. And I can give an example of that if if you'd like to hear it. Uh, it's probably one of the one of the standout tales from from my journey. Oh, yeah. If I could share that, yeah, let's hear it. All right. So I was I was down in the south of Tajikistan, which lies just to the north of Afghanistan, and it's an absolutely beautiful country. I just celebrated the Persian New Year, and I've been off to a really remote village uh, called Shirken, in which I found. Um, with the help of some locals, some some dinosaur footprints, which which were marked on a cliff face and discovered in the 60s by a Russian uh, archaeologist. And from there, my next step was to move towards Uzbekistan. And I know some of these countries may be unfamiliar to some of your listeners, but Uzbekistan is known generally as a fairly repressive country in which there's there's not so much freedom of speech. There's there's quite a tight grip on the country there, unfortunately. And as I passed travellers on the way, I heard tales that you know you may well be watched once you once you go to this country, and um, your uh, rights may may not be looked after as they might in the Western world. And and so I headed towards the Uzbek border in a very remote part of Central Asia, uh, between Dushanbe, the capital of Tajikistan, and a, a mountainous corner of Uzbekistan. And I headed there late at night, and it was dark, and it's a very, very quiet border post. And I, I crossed over the, the Tajik border. He, he tried to seek a bribe out of me. Uh, I refused and managed to get over into no man's land. And I was greeted in, on the Uzbek side by a pristinely attired officer uh, wearing a green suit, green hat, in his uh, perfectly white room. And he gave me a, a really excellent welcome and, and showed me through to the next door. And I thought, great, I'm, I'm in Uzbekistan. I, I don't know what the problem was. But as I go through into this room, it's this big, bright, white, almost medical-looking room, and there's a desk with a with a man sat behind it and um, on tapping away at a computer, and, a, and another stern officer staring at me. And it's only me there at, at this time crossing the border. And he points to my bag and he points to the table, and and so I throw it down, and he asks for my laptop, my phone, my hard drive, my cameras. All of these things, which I've been carrying with me, all my electronic goods, and they start going through all the files on my camera, all all the various things on my laptop, and I'm kind of thinking, oh, what, what on earth's going on here? Wow! And he, he he takes me for a for a search and search through every item in my bag, and this process takes maybe about an hour, and I think, okay, yeah, they've just about done everything now. I'm going to be fine. But the last thing they checked was a medical kit which I had in my pack. And they rooted through the tablets one by one and found these painkillers, ordinary painkillers, which you can get over the counter here in the UK called Cocodamol. And unbeknown to me, they were classed in Uzbekistan as an illegal narcotic. And so from that moment on, (laughs) I was in their eyes an illegal drug smuggler. (laughs) <laughs> and I was hauled up to a, so I was hauled up to a um, an interrogation room. A four hour interrogation ensued. I was I was asked to sign all kinds of documents, all written in Russian. The English they had was very poor, so we had trouble communicating. And at the end of all this, it was it was about midnight, and 
and they said, okay, you need to sign these papers. I'm kind of thinking, there's, there's no way I'm signing these papers. I've no idea what they said. Um, I said, no, I'm not going to sign them. Uh, I'm going to wait until the morning. They said, okay, we'll, we'll put you in this, in this room overnight, uh, which had basically only a bed in it. And I came up with a plan overnight. I thought, right, I'll ring, I'll ring the British Embassy in the morning. They'll save me. So I called them up. This is a Friday morning in uh, late March. And I got an immediate answer phone message. Hello, it's, it's Good Friday. And we, oh, will be no. closed until, <laughs> we will be closed until next Tuesday. Our apologies for any inconvenience. And they, the Uzbeks snatched the phone out of my hands. And, and that was me all on my own again. Um, and what ensued was a four hours, four, four, sorry, four days detained in, a, in the town of Termez on the Afghan border, after, after which I was, I was made to pay a hefty fine and um, allowed to go on my way. <laughs> so wow. that was uh, some experience, yeah. What did you go through during those four days? Did you begin to think that you might be stuck there for good? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when, I'd, when, I'd, when they took me down to Termez on the border, they introduced me to, to an interpreter and they were saying, there's a, there's a very good chance you could go to prison here. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was absolutely terrified. I, I was due to get married in four months' time and I, I was just thinking, I'm, I'm going to be stuck in this, this, this hellhole, you know, I'm, how, how on earth am I going to get out? Um, and they, they basically put me under house arrest in, in a very dingy hotel in the middle of the city and, and, um, sort of, <laughs> there was one particular, one particular sol- soldier or officer who, who returned to the, to the room each day and, and was just the most cruel minded person, just subjecting me to constant sort of mental anguish really. and. I couldn't, I couldn't shake him off, and he knew that he knew that I was just in the palm of his, his hands. Um, he had my passport. It, there was no way out for me at that point, and and he, he insisted, he insisted that once we once I'd agreed that I would pay a fine rather than go to jail. Um, once I'd agreed on that, he said, "Okay, then Oliver, you must you must leave the the very next day. You must leave Uzbekistan and, and go back to your country." And for a moment there, I actually agreed with him and thought, you know what, let's, I'm about halfway through this trip. Maybe I should just go home. I'm putting my family through all, all this anguish because of these, these troubles. Maybe I should just go home. Um, but then this, this inner voice just spoke to me, which is the same voice which made me come on this journey, which made me realize that, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to do something really great. And, if you give up just because of uh, something like this, then, you know, you, you could regret it for the rest of your life. And so I said goodbye to this officer once I'd been let out after paying my fine. And I caught a taxi straight up to the mountains and went and climbed on the next day in Uzbekistan. So they released you expecting <laughs> that you're going to run away. And instead, you just went right on in. I did. I did. Yeah. Um, that was, yeah, that, that story in particular has raised a few eyebrows before, but, um, and I, I was, I was very much kind of stepping further into, into the unknown at that point. And maybe it was a moment of madness. I don't know, but ultimately looking back, I'm glad that I carried on with my journey rather than, you know, hitting the airport and flying home. 
So we have to hear how things turned out. When you finally decided it was time to exit <laughs> Uzbekistan, Well, what happened? <laughs> I mean, it, it, after, after heading over to the mountains, it, it wasn't plain sailing at all. Uh, that very first night, I found, a, I found a small cafe in this tiny mountainous village, and there's no Wi-Fi, no internet access. So, unfortunately, I was still cut off from my family. They still believed I was, I was being held, and you know, they're worrying back in the UK. And at this point, I, knowing that I'm cut off, I'm thinking, this is, you know, this is just stupid. Why am I putting them through this? And I, I was sat up in the cafe, sort of wondering if I've made the wrong decision. And uh, two policemen come in and they spot me instantly and I just found it strange how they knew I was there and they they pulled me outside checked through my passport and my papers and um, just kind of looked me up and down but then sent me on my way and I met some met some local local guys that night as well and we um, we drove up to a viewpoint over the town and um, we were sort of listening to music and uh, I just thought wow this is this is brilliant you know I've met some local people who've been incredibly kind to me uh, but then sure enough, about half an hour later, another police car rolls up and orders me back to my hotel at once. Um, it was quite late at that point. But the next day I woke up, I went and climbed a mountain. But on getting back again, late in the evening, uh, perhaps spookily, uh, most spookily of all, as I walked back to my hotel and it was pitch black, I saw the police car uh, parked up just around the corner from the hotel and watched as the policeman got out of his car, walked along the front of the hotel, stood up against the window and spied through it for about 10 seconds. And I knew there was nobody in that room because it was my bedroom. And <laughs> oh, he, no. was, he was consciously spying on me or at least attempting to spy on me without knowing, of course, I was watching him from the shadows of the road. And um, so I, once he'd gone away, I dashed into my room um, put a blanket over the, the window so that nobody could see through. And um, I, I got the hell out of there the next morning at about 5 a.m. <laughs> I bet you slept really and, well that uh, night. <laughs> oh, it's not my best night's sleep, no. <laughs> no. So, yeah, the next day it turned into a bit of a, Jason, a, bit of a James Bond adventure. I was traveling from town to town across Uzbekistan. I covered about 400 miles, swapping taxis in every town to reach the, the city of Bukhara. And um, believe that I'd, I'd hopefully by now evaded the watchful eye of the state. Um, at that point, my next my next planned move was to travel down into Turkmenistan, which uh, actually has an even worse reputation than Uzbekistan. Oh no! Um, yeah, but perhaps some by some miracle, my visa didn't come through for Turkmenistan, and I was basically, you know, that that option was taken out of my hands to travel south and so I had no choice but to to get out of Uzbekistan through the north and, and back into the relative peacefulness of Kazakhstan um, fortunately without any more problems. So we want to thank our sponsor, Athletic Brewing, for promoting a healthy lifestyle through making some of the world's best non-alcoholic craft beer. They make excellent tasting NA for healthy, active, modern adults. They use certified all-organic grains, and each can of non-alcoholic beer is only between 50 and 70 calories. They have IPA, golden ale, stouts, and tons of seasonal offerings. And recently, they actually just took home the gold medal at the U.S. Open Beer Championships for their double hop IPA. 
If you would like to get your hands on some, you can save 15% by using the code ADVENTURE at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic Brewing, the best tasting way to keep your promises. And I also want to thank our sponsor, CS Instant Coffee, for making this show happen. They make 100% Arabica Instant Coffee. They use compostable packaging, and each package makes about 20 ounces of coffee. So I'll take one of those with me on an overnight trip, and it makes two pretty good-sized cups of coffee. And it's an awesome feeling knowing I can just throw that in my backpack, find some hot water, and I'm good to go. Save 20% by using the code ADVENTURE at csinstant.coffee. In the end, are you glad that you stayed in Uzbekistan, or would you have rather have just bypassed it somehow? Well, I'm alive, and it's a good story. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, I'm, it's, uh, I'm glad it's happened. Why not, hey? It's uh, character building, let's call it that. <laughs> well, you know, I have to just candidly admit, the idea of traveling sounds wonderful. The idea of climbing mountains sounds wonderful. The idea of meeting the local people sounds wonderful. The idea of dealing with the authorities doesn't sound wonderful at all. Yes, yes, that was um, that was not the most pleasant part of the trip. Um, mm. However, I will say that all the other amazing moments really made it worth it. So what was next after Uzbekistan? After Uzbekistan, I, I so I was found myself in Kazakhstan, and and from there travelled across to to the Caucasus region, which is constitutes of Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. Three really fascinating countries in their own right, um, which is quite similar to much of Central Asia, was was under Soviet rule for for decades, and and since then has has endured kind of civil unrest and these kinds of problems but but what's left is a really undiscovered part of asia which um which absolutely fascinated me at once you've got azerbaijan which sits on the coast of the caspian sea it's got immense oil wealth and the city baku is 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 called the dubai of the caucasus it's an absolutely stunning place and then you've got these incredible untouched white mountains which which line the border between the Caucasus countries and southern part of Russia. And so that that was my next target to go and explore those. Mm. That area has always been uh, kind of of interest to me. And I, it might have something to do mm. with the Caucasus, right? Or Georgia having the reputation for the most oldest people in the world living there, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> did you learn anything about that when you were there? Well, if uh, if my experiences are ever, ever anything to go by, uh, we all need to drink a lot more vodka in, <laughs> in order to in order to reach uh, that old age. Because every time I was invited into one of the hospitable Georgians' homes, and they are the most hospitable people, um, I was inevitably plied with countless uh, countless glasses of vodka. So perhaps there's that's their magic trick. Who knows? <laughs> well, I had heard it might be red wine, but <laughs> I don't know. Well, the red wine is also excellent. Yeah, sample. I was uh, forced to sample that on many occasions. <laughs> <laughs> and twist your arm, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, it sounds so fascinating. You know, I heard a study once. No one knows really why it is that the people in that region tend to live so long, I don't think. But I did I did hear of a study once that was fascinating. Uh, it was a long-term study where they studied people's lives, and how, especially people that have lived a long time. And they looked for some common element. Was it diet? Was it a stress level? You know, was it exercise? What was it that it, that allowed these people to live so long? And this particular study came back with the most surprising result. It was not diet. Okay. It was not exercise. It was not stress. What it was was joy. They found that the people that lived the longest were the ones that enjoyed life the most. And the conclusion was, go ahead and eat something, even if it's not that great for you, but make sure you really enjoy it when you do. (laughs) Celebrate life to the fullest. Have friends. Laugh a lot. And you'll live long. And I thought, well, I love that outcome. I don't know if it's medically sound, but it sounds great. So were the people in Georgia very joyful? Uh, they absolutely were. It was it was quite stunning, actually. Um, as I mentioned, I was invited into people's homes, you know, without without ask, asking asking whatsoever. You meet somebody in the street, and they pull you through the through the front door, and five minutes later, you'd be sat around sat around a table, you know, getting to know each other. Um, but in the in the traditional meals, and I was very lucky to experience one of these high up in the Caucasus in a little beautiful little town of Gudauri. Um, where some Georgian ski tourists had just returned from seven days in the mountains and I was traipsing through this village trying to find a place to stay. And this was the only place left in, with the lights on because it was very late in the ski season and everyone else had, had shut up. So I, uh, I knocked on this door, which um, which was advertised as a hostel, although the, the, the sign had been pulled down. And, and they said, we are actually closed, but you know what, this is, uh, this is Georgia. Welcome on in. And it was just the most fascinating evening. Uh, the 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 evening meal constituted of about two hours of of joyful speeches and belly laughter and singing after after dinner and mm. then an open fire outside and dancing. It, like you say, actually, it was it was really pure joy for life, and it's just so invigorating to be in that setting. Wow, I think that those of us in the West need to take notes right now. I absolutely agree. Yeah. That's that's amazing to me. Yeah. Why is it that they have the freedom to celebrate life and we have the freedom to celebrate life, but it sounds like at least mm. my impression is they're doing a better job of it. What do we need to do to be more like yeah. that? Um I think I think a lot of it is simplicity actually. Uh from from my point of view it's it's leading as simple a life as as possible and detaching yourself from time to time you don't have to do it always but detaching yourself from time to time from the modern world from from phones and emails and stresses and things like that and i'm not suggesting you go on a big adventure like i did but just get outside walk in the mountains and i think that is hugely stress relieving um to have to have nothing with you whatsoever but a pair of walking boots and you know a couple of friends um, I think it is simplicity which which really brings about true happiness. Yeah, I think you're on to something there as well. Let's go back to the beginning of the trip. You mentioned earlier that you had the inner voice that told you to go. And I'd like yeah. to hear more about your motivations for doing the trip. 
Um, what gave you the idea? You mentioned you saw the mountains, you know, that went through that part of Asia. But was that what planted the seed? And what was it that finally, in the end, made you step out the door and make it happen? So I guess, I guess the motivations were there were there were more than one really. Um, partly it was a, a big part of it was setting myself such a outlandish challenge that it would perhaps shape my shape my future, perhaps shape my future life. I knew that if I was to quit my job and and go on a one week trip around around Europe, it, it wouldn't quite be so life changing. I needed I knew that it needed to be so extreme, so unusual, so challenging that I would have to evolve as a person to actually reach my endpoint. And so as I as I added up this this journey and, and looked at it in more detail, I just thought it's it's so perfect. It's it's so simple. Travel the length of Asia across across the mountainous spine and get to the end. Um, and yet it's so challenging. And and once once I once I'd settled on that, it was really there was no there was no doubt in my mind that I was at least going to get to the start point and everything else thereafter was really left to chance. <laughs> However, I did have this, this, this underlying compulsion um, to, to get to the end, knowing that if I didn't, then I could well return back home, you know, back, back at square one. And mm-hmm. so I, I absolutely had this determination to succeed despite the many challenges I faced. Well, what do you think the biggest obstacles were to getting started on the trip. Let's go there for just a minute. Mm, okay. I think I think it was perhaps c- convincing although it was a solo journey it's it's convincing other people to to have belief in you in some way. And that includes kind of friends and family who I told them, I told them this plan and, and they kind of looked at me as though I was completely mad, uh, probably justifiably. Uh, but it was, it was, um, it was accepting in my own mind as well that this was, this was achievable. And there was a narrative which, which I kept repeating in my mind as I went through this journey. It's that, the only thing that can actually stop you, it's not, it's not the avalanches, it's not the cold weather, it's not the chance of arrest or, or persecution from authorities. The only thing that can really stop you from getting to the end point is yourself. Um, if you can force yourself to keep on overcoming these goals as you go along, then really success is in your own hands um, and on a journey like this. And I don't quite know. I do look back now and I don't know if I could go and do that journey again. But for some reason, I think it was perhaps two years spent, two years spent selling, selling kitchens, living a, a life which I wasn't really enjoying. But I just felt this absolute compulsion um, to, to complete this journey, which, which I, I don't know if it was a fleeting part of, of my own existence or, or if I could harness that again and, and do another trip just as grand um, but it was it was like an inner compulsion, which is kind of hard to describe and may well sound kind of crazy, <laughs> but that's uh, that's the best I can do. No, I think I get that. I think that many people feel that tug, you know, that says life's got to have bigger experiences and mm. there's something out there. 
But I, I also keyed in on one thing that you said. You said you, you took off on a journey that you knew would have to change you, that you wouldn't be the same person at the end that you were at the beginning. And you chose mm-hmm. that journey. That's where a lot of people stop. That's scary to people. Yeah. You know? So what yeah. kind of a change were you looking for? Well, I was... I guess I'd had a taste of it in in previous journeys that I previous little adventures I'd been on knowing that when you do force yourself out of your comfort zone um you do grow as a person and and what I was what I was what I was hoping for for myself is that I would realize that if I could if if I could actually complete this crazy journey that I challenged myself with then you know what could I do? So I did come back with a with a mindset that actually anything is is kind of possible now. If I put my mind to it as much as I managed to put my mind to this, then I can achieve it. Um, and I, I think it, it comes it comes down basically to to having goals, setting yourself achievable goals, and and that's something i've absolutely continued to do ever since this expedition i've i've set myself regular incremental goals to try and evolve as a person and i think it's i think it's great to to try something new every single day and to challenge yourself every single day yeah. and if you do that if you do it over and over again then you know it, it becomes normal to you. you you become competent and you become confident in that in that whatever it might be so life itself becomes the adventure. Absolutely. That's really cool, man. <laughs> really cool. Well, you also set out as a part of your objectives to climb at least one mountain in each of these countries. And uh, you climbed yeah. mountains in wintertime. Give us a rundown yes. of that. Yeah, I mean, that was that was perhaps the cause for some, some of the people, as I mentioned, to raise their eyebrows about my trip. Well, okay, I understand you going, but... You do know that it's winter, don't you? Um, but uh, despite despite those concerns, yeah, I was there, and it was it was full winter condition, conditions, and and we're kind of talking minus. Well, it's Fahrenheit over there, isn't it? But very cold, <laughs> very very cold um, in in Tibet, certainly, and and across Central Asia, and so I, I did face uh, a lot of challenges associated with mountains off the beaten track in winter conditions. And certainly, uh, probably Kyrgyzstan stands out the most in my mind, if I could uh, maybe describe that. Oh, yeah, go for it. uh, experience. So I'd I'd just arrived in the the city of Bishkek, which is the capital of Kyrgyzstan. And just to the south of the city, about an hour away, is the Alato Mountains, which are a fantastically rugged mountain range. And I've been tracking the weather closely because I knew that a, a storm was coming in, and I had had local advice stay, saying that um, that really, you know, people don't go to these mountains in the winter time. Mm. Uh, but still, but still, my uh, my objective was set. I'd, I'd picked out a, a map through no real research, just purely because it looked appealing on the contours on on my map. And so I, I settled that I was going to climb this this mountain called Komsomolets, which is just about uh, four thousand meters, about four thousand and fifty meters, I believe. And so I hiked up there from from the start point. There's there's no trail whatsoever. 
absolutely, um, you know, nobody around. The mountains really are deserted. And it was a long slog up a scree slope. And the altitude is just starting to, to grip me. And I finally reached 4,000 meters. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to wait here and, and spend the night and I'll, I'll reach the summit in the morning. So I set up camp on a snowy ridge on, in, in the middle of nowhere in, in Kyrgyzstan. And overnight, the conditions suddenly changed. The temperature dropped to around minus 15 and this immense blizzard uh, blew in from the south. And I was I was sleeping in nothing but a, a sleeping bag and like a bivouac, a bivy bag. Uh, so I had my face my face exposed to the conditions. Oh boy! Because I was I was traveling ultralight. I had no tent whatsoever. There's blizzards coming in. There's snow um, whizzing against my face, and I'm trying to shelter behind my bag. And you know, morning comes around. I, I'm dying to, for morning to come around because it's absolutely freezing and can barely feel my feet. All my fruit, food is frozen solid, and despite putting my water water bottles inside my sleeping bag with me, they too have frozen. Um, and and that was absolutely one of those distinct moments where I really had to ask myself when I got up that morning, how much do I want it? How much do I want to strap on my frozen boots and lift up my heavy pack and and turn into the blizzard and on up the mountain to the summit? And Again, I came back to that thing where, you know, I I do believe that I can I can get to the end, I can get to the summit. I, I don't have to let things like the altitude and the, the snow and the cold stop me if I really believe that I can do it. And so I, I did do exactly that. I maybe did star jumps for about 20 minutes to warm my feet back up. And then I raced up to the summit and swiftly back down. And um, that that was absolutely one of the most memorable mountains. And uh, I remember, actually, I got to the bottom and I thought I got back to the trailhead where there's a, a couple of buildings, but no real people. And uh, I kind of thought that was the end of my challenge. And then reminded myself that actually the capital city where I come from, from was 40 miles away <laughs> and I had no way of getting back. So I kind of looked the road up and down and then set off. Uh, fortunately, after a couple of hours walking, I managed to I managed to flag down a passing car, and uh, the family were very kindly took me back and shared chocolates with me. And I remember one quote: uh, the 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 mother of this family said, she said when I told them about my journey, she said, "Okay, uh, but while you were sleeping in in your in your sleeping bag, yeah, weren't you worried about eagles pecking your face?" <laughs> and, um, I have to say I, that was never a concern amongst everything else. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the first I've ever heard of that. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if that's a thing there. Mm, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Well, that's amazing. So you said neg fifteen, which in Fahrenheit is around zero. Mm. Wind howling, yeah. uh, snow plastering your face miserable conditions did you worry about your safety did you start to say you know this this could be dangerous it was it was kind of on the edge it was really i mean by the time by the time morning came around and i was to start moving i could really hardly feel my feet there was there was an immense burning pain in in both of them and despite wearing two pairs of socks and a, a good winter sleeping bag um i was con- quite concerned about my feet um especially 
but it was it was I just knowing that I was completely alone up there and knowing that I really had no chance of anybody coming to my help I didn't even have signal on my phone um was the you know the kick up the backside to to get out of the sleeping bag and start moving again um, because only I, I could get myself out of that situation um which yeah <laughs> is uh, again kind of crazy but but that was uh, that was reason enough for me to keep moving well and keep moving you have to in those situations you don't really have another choice mm. absolutely absolutely yeah that's almost when your survival instinct uh, kicks in so i have to ask the question cuz i know some listeners are going to are, are sitting out there saying what why mm. why would you do such a thing is it worth it there's got to be some motivation besides just testing yourself. Yeah. Um, I think really what it comes down to, and I don't want to give the wrong idea about people, uh, people's life choices, but, but for me, I just felt that I was, I was just fed up with the mundanity of, of an ordinary life and I, I and having tasted travel and adventure in the outdoors, I just craved that adrenaline so much. And I think part of that was was kind of being fed up in my job, knowing that there's more to life than this. And and perhaps I'd, I'd got a bit of a a disregard for my own existence. In a it sounds dramatic, but and perhaps that's what really compelled me to take such big risks along the way. It was it was. Um, yeah, it was not really enjoying my, uh, my the way that my life was turning out and knowing that I needed this adrenaline kick, this adventure, this life-lifting experience. And um, again, that was, that was one of the key driving points right throughout the expedition. Mm. Well, now you're done. You've done it. How did it change you? <laughs> Well, it's it it really has uh, it really has been a life changing experience. Um, since then, I've I've not gone back to the uh, the nine to five grind. I've I've become qualified as a British mountain leader, and um, I now work as an expedition leader, um, taking trips to various places around the world. Uh, I I led a trip to Malawi in the summer, and I'm heading back to Africa in in about a week, leading a tour to Rwanda, Burundi, and the Congo. Um, and I've got around six or seven expeditions lined up for next year. And, and so, you know, I feel like that really, the way that things have turned out has justified, has justified an entirety, um, deciding to go on that expedition and deciding to push myself so hard because I am truly a changed person for it. And it really has changed my life. Um, and you know, I, I can't envisage a time when I will go back to, uh, selling kitchens. That's for sure. I get it. I really do. I have my experiences doing really challenging mountaineering in the winter time or, or, mm. uh, winter camping or, you know, extended backpacking trips, climbing 14ers, whatever it is, those challenges yeah. have become part of who I am. And mm. I I see myself now in light of those, and I think that's what happens when we go out and have these adventures, is we learn so much about ourselves, and it gives us courage, if nothing else, to uh, reach yeah. for those goals that you talk about, to try to build a life that is meaningful 
in its own way for us. Isn't that what it's about? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. And um, yeah, uh, as you say, it's, it's, it's just the small incremental goals. If, if you, you know, I hadn't tried climbing until I was 16, 17, you know, you've got kids going climbing at the age of six, seven now. Um, and, and so, you know, another, another message, which, which perhaps I think is really important is that it, it really is never too late to make that change. If you're not happy with the way your life is going, always remember that the next day tomorrow is, is, is the first day of the rest of your life. What's happened has happened, but it's never too late to make a positive change and go out and, and seek whatever you want in life. It really is never too late to do that. Word, word. I, I'm with you, man. <laughs> that is so rich. That is so rich. Yeah. And, you know, some people might say, isn't life hard enough without adding all that in? And, and I stop and say, no, you don't get it. It's all mm. that being added in that makes life less difficult. Hundred percent. I absolutely agree. Mm. Absolutely agree. Well, we have to talk about your book. So, man, we just got yeah. a couple of high points from your trip, but you've written a whole book about it. Again, the name of the book is "The Trail of the Mountain Folk." And I guess for starters, right. how can people find your book? Let's let's make sure that people know where they can get it. So it's uh, it's available on Amazon, but probably the best way to get a direct link is to head to head onto my website, which is oliverfrance.com. And from there, you can you can hit a link straight to to my book and also read um, read the blurb, the synopsis. And yeah, so the book covers covers the the full journey with lots more stories crammed in right across the mountains. Talking about my experiences and the way it's impacted me and the challenges I've faced and also lots of the good times. Uh, so, yeah, the trail of the mountain folk. And if you head to oliverfrance.com, that's where you'll find it. Well, do you have a favorite passage that you would share with us? Yeah, I've um, I've come up with something which I don't think we've touched on in this conversation. So okay, just to set it up, this is just as I was attempting to sneak my way into, into a a Tibetan village in the middle of winter when I know I knew that a festival was approaching uh, despite the watchful eye of the state. So I'll take it away from here. Um, eight hours northwest of Chengdu lies the Tibetan frontier town of Zoij, which sits on a windswept plateau at three and a half thousand meters. I had entered a bleak and unforgiving landscape. A frozen gale whisked across the tablelands, pushing the temperature towards a twilight low of minus 20. Tibetan nomads braved the weather and wandered the deserted streets attired in thick yak wool tubers, traditional coats. I made straight for the bus ticket office, a hole in a ramshackle hut. Tashi Dalek, hello. Langmusi, tomorrow. The young lady behind the desk looked shy and uncertain. She turned to her colleague and they spoke briefly. The lady translated a message on her phone, then showed me the screen. No bus tomorrow. Mm. I smiled at myself. I ought to have expected this. I tried again. Langmusi, tomorrow, bus. I pointed at the bus. I know, I know, I tapped my head. Then I tapped my watch and held up seven fingers to indicate the time of its departure. Tomorrow, bashfully sinking into her coat and smiling at her colleague, the lady simply shook her head and pointed once again to the message on her screen. This was agonizing. I knew beyond doubt that there would be a bus tomorrow. Unwavering online timetables had assured me of that. I was angry. I'd travelled for eight hours into another freezing ghost town, and I was being told 
that I could not continue. Moreover, I just had, had just eight days to travel more than 3,000 miles across some of China's most sensitive regions before my visa expires and I'm collared by the local cops. I went to the shop to buy some food supplies before returning as dusk fell and seeing the ticket seller walking home from the station. Please, I held my hands together. Langmusi, tomorrow. The lady shrugged her shoulders, smiled timidly and continued on her way. Then, in a lucky moment, I was approached by a local lady who, seeing me wandering the town with my rucksacks, asked if I needed a place to stay. I followed her to a very basic guest house, perhaps the only one in town, and she showed me into the tiniest bedroom I've ever seen. It was the exact width and narrow of a narrow single bed within, and there was just enough room to open the door at the foot of the bed. A window above, above the bedhead offered unrivaled views into the reception area, and a torn neck curtain ensured that privacy, privacy was impossible. Yet at these temperatures, I wasn't forgetting undressed. The guest house owner and her daughter beckoned me to join them for dinner. We shared rice and a hot vegetable stew, and I was encouraged to eat, eat, eat. Thoroughly stuffed, I turned beside the stove and watched a wintry storm blow in after nightfall. I rested with a hot cup of tea, ruminating over my next move, until the front door creaked open and a Tibetan nomad entered amid a flurry of snow. He brushed some snow from his shoulders, shivered a little, and blew into his hands. The nomad settled beside the stove, but did not lift his eyes. We each remained like so for half an hour or more, quiet and contemplative among the bitter harmony of winter's wind. Then the nomad raised his head and looked at me. I looked back and was surprised as he spoke in eloquent English. What brings you to the town of Zoij? I'm on my way to Langmusi, I said, but I'm having some difficulty. The ticket seller says there's no bus tomorrow. The nomad frowned. Of course, that's not the case. A bus leaves for Langmusi every morning at seven. So I believe. The nomad continued to frown. You know that there is a big festival tomorrow. It's Tibetan New Year, Lhosar. Hundreds of people will be going to the village of Langmusi to celebrate at the monasteries. I hope that you may see it. I nodded. Are you going to Langmusi too? No. I'm visiting home for the festive season. My village is not far from here. And where have you come from? The nomad paused and glanced at the stove. I work in New Delhi. New Delhi? It seemed a strange workplace for a Tibetan nomad. Yes, I've lived there for the last ten years. You see, I work for the Free Tibet Press. I'm a journalist. However, we're not allowed to operate inside China. And now that I've come home, I'm under watch, he paused. So, there are people following you? I don't know. But when I return to China... I must hand over my passport and call the police once a week to report my whereabouts. And what if you wish to return to New Delhi when you don't have a passport? Well, I must seek permission. Anytime I want to leave my village, I must seek permission. If they do not grant this, then I cannot go anywhere. It is a very difficult situation. Home is no longer feels like it did when I was young. There's too much tension, too much discord, and sometimes I feel like I'm imprisoned. Since I left home 10 years ago, many Chinese businesses have arrived in Tibet. This makes it much harder for Tibetan people to live well. My people must learn Mandarin, but the outsiders do not learn Tibetan. And sometimes our culture feels marginalized. I'm sad to tell you that life in Tibet is filled with turmoil. I considered the nomad's word before his voice returned in a different tone. So, you wish to go to Langmusi tomorrow? I nodded. Then meet me here at 6am and I will help you.
Wow. That is very well written. And I was just, I was captivated by the story. So did you get the bus in the morning? Well, I did indeed. The uh, the nomad snuck off and, and bought me some tickets and smuggled me onto this onto this local bus. And the blizzard continued to blow and snow swept across the road. And among me were, were all these other Tibetan nomads and, and uh, monks. And they were praying in their seats and swinging prayer wheels and, and whooping and hollering. And we eventually made it up to this town. I again needed to to hitch a ride with two monks past two police checkpoints and finally into village where I have to say I experienced one of the most incredible and dumbfounding uh, festivals and experiences I've ever had the pleasure of experiencing in my life. Mm, man, that is a book that has to be read. I want to uh, I want to get a copy of it myself. The Trail of the Mountain Folk. That's and the one, yeah. So go to com, and that might be a best way to get more information. You can click through there to order the book. That would be awesome. Yeah, thank you very much, Kurt. Very well written and amazing stories, man. It sounds like quite the trip, and I get it. Life-changing mm. for sure. Life-changing for sure. Absolutely. Well, I want to remind the listeners out there, you also do public speaking. I do, indeed. Is the best way to reach you in general, just to go to oliverfrance.com. It absolutely is. On there, I've got some various little travel stories. You can purchase my book. I've got some videos of my travels. In fact, a six-minute video which which covers this entire journey across Asia and is a really good taster of my trip. Uh, I've also got photography and and links to how you can how you can arrange any public speaking events. Um, absolutely, that's the place to go. Oliverfrance.com. Well, Ollie, you've certainly given me the itch to travel more. I've got to do it. <laughs> wow. Awesome. What an <laughs> amazing life experience. Thank you so much for coming on the Adventure Sports Podcast today and sharing that with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you today. Oh, yeah. It's our honor. And hey, all the listeners out there, wow, right? <laughs> Until the next show, I'm not just going to say get out there and have some fun. I'm going to say plan something big. Make that a part of who you are and get out there and have some fun. Well, first of all, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means the world to us that you want to spend your time with us. If you'd like to help us further, please just leave us a review on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your friends about us. You can become a patron, a supporter of the show for $5 a month at patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you know somebody that would make a good guest, reach out. We're always looking for good adventure and outdoor stories. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors, whose messages follow right now. Athletic Brewing makes the best non-alcoholic craft beer. Go to their website at athleticbrewing.com and use the code in our show notes to save 15% on your first order. After all this adventure talk, if you're needing some gear yourself, but you need some advice before buying, go to backpacktribe.com where you can ask questions to the owners who have experience with all the gear as well as all of it for sale right there on their website.